By the time Stanley Kubrick went into production on Barry Lyndon in 1973, he had enjoyed over a decade of commercial success. The uninterrupted sequence from Spartacus, Lolita and Doctor Strangelove, through to 2001 and A Clockwork Orange, had secured for him complete creative control over his productions. Undoubtedly, two other factors were influential in that ascendancy, neither of which had anything to do with Kubrick himself. Firstly, there was the breakup of Hollywood's studio system, and secondly, the maturation of the auteur theory. As the studios began to crumble, so was born the cult of the director, and Kubrick found himself idolised as one of its greatest American ambassadors. But with the release of Barry Lyndon in 1975, he experienced his first box office disappointment in 15 years. Chastened by the public's indifference to his adaptation of William Thackeray's early Victorian novel, Kubrick decided to turn to contemporary literature and, thumbing through stacks of books, he came upon The Shadow Knows by Diane Johnson. A recently published gothic horror, Johnson took its title from a 1930s radio show. <laughs> Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? <laughs> the shadow knows. Johnson's fourth novel tells of a divorcee, simply known as N, trying to raise her four children in Sacramento's housing projects. One day, her front door is smashed in by an axe and smeared with blood. Could it be her psychotic ex-husband? A few days later, a strangled cat is left outside her apartment. Could it be her maid, Osella, who is leaving threatening messages on the phone? Or could it be her deeply disturbed neighbour, Bess, who wails obscenities at her from next door in the middle of the night? It certainly can't be her babysitter, Ev, because she is found dead in the laundry room of the building's basement. And although no one is ever identified as being responsible for that and the other terrors, N's fears are swamped by such paranoia, she can no longer differentiate between fact and phantasmagoria. Kubrick was drawn to Johnson's novel because he found she was doing in literature what he had been trying to do in cinema, break from traditional narrative form. Kubrick found such storytelling stifled the development of the medium. But while the 1970s is often cited as a decade of revisionist westerns, gangster pictures, detective stories, horrors and musicals, the same decade also saw a consolidation of familiar plotting, with the likes of Love Story, The Towering Inferno, Star Wars, Jaws and Rocky. Kubrick recognised that in The Shadow Knows, Johnson was innovating the gothic novel, drawing in and upending all manner of traditions from Charlotte Bronte and Edgar Allan Poe, all the way along to Henry James and Franz Kafka. However, since the end of World War II and the enactment of the GI Bill, universities across America have offered programmes in creative writing. And while that generously encourages ambitions in many aspiring writers, such programmes nonetheless prioritise styles of writing which undoubtedly result in the standardisation of storytelling, which is precisely what Kubrick was railing against. Here is Johnson herself at the Sewanee Writers' Conference in 2013. Because most writers and teachers of American literature have been exposed to the same foundation concepts of creative writing teaching, uh, American literature has itself been shaped and changed. The artist has been co-opted into a system of professional formation that seems or could be far from encouraging creativity, maybe in fact the opposite. 
question, does the captivity of the artist and the proliferation of the student writing programs perpetuate certain kinds of writing so that many American writers end up sounding like each other, either in style or content or both? Perhaps recognizing a kindred spirit, Kubrick approached Johnson, but not to film her already neglected novel. Instead, to help him adapt Stephen King's bestseller, The Shining. The reason Kubrick had contacted Johnson was because King, whose first two books, Carrie and Salem's Lot, had established him as the single biggest author in horror fiction, had already written the screenplay to his own book. Kubrick had no interest in filming King's script. In fact, Kubrick had little interest in filming King's novel either. Rather, he just wanted to use it as a jumping off point. Yes, Kubrick was intent on making a horror film, but as with all his other films, he wanted to do much more. If you visit the Stanley Kubrick archives, you will see Kubrick's much-thumbed and heavily annotated copy of King's novel. And there on page 9 is a rather telling note. As Jack Torrance is being interviewed for the position of caretaker in the Overlook Hotel, Mr. Ullman tells him about a previous caretaker. He had a good employment record, good references, and from what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his family with an axe. Stacked them neatly in one of the rooms of the West Wing, and uh, then he uh, he put uh, both barrels of a shotgun in his mouth. Police, uh, I thought that it was what the old timers used to call cabin fever. In the margins of his copy, Kubrick scribbled that cabin fever is quote important to establish. This is the first thing the audience will worry about. And although this is a small note to pick up on. I do think it provides at least a key as to what Kubrick was already envisaging what his horror film would be about. Because horror films feed into and from our subconscious, The Shining had to be about something other than what we would see on screen. So what is it about? Ever since its release, numerous theories have developed, some of which were entertained in Rodney Asher's bemusing 2012 documentary Room 237. There, different people claim that A. Kubrick was using the film as an admission he had helped fake the moon landings. B. That it's really about the Holocaust. C. The genocide inflicted upon Native American Indians by European immigrants. And D. If you were to build a hotel based on the way the film lays out its rooms, you would find it architecturally impossible. So therefore, the film is about spatial dissonance. I don't think The Shining is about any of those things. Instead, I think it is a critique of white patriarchy and its founding status within American culture. In particular, I think it is about domestic abuse. And to be even more particular, let me return to the earlier clip. Police, uh, I thought that it was what the old timers used to call cabin fever. Kind of claustrophobic reaction which can occur when people are shut in together over long periods of time. The term cabin fever dates from about 1900 and was used to describe the mental implosion that impacted numerous European settlers as they migrated west across North America in the 19th century. Travelling from rapidly expanding cities such as New York, Boston and Philadelphia out to the isolated prairies sometimes caused madness resulting in violence, mass murder and suicide. Which is why for me The Shining is somewhat similar to a western. The film's first few minutes retrace the roots of the early pioneers 
as they wagon trained across the Great Plains, created the frontiers, and then settled towns and cities. Which is why, under the opening credits, we see a tiny yellow Volkswagen threading its way through the vast expanse of the Colorado Rockies. In that car is Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson, and like some prospector, he is heading up into the hills filled with ambition to build his future. Having secured the job as caretaker, Jack then returns to the mountains with his son Danny, played by Danny Lloyd, and his wife Wendy, played by Shelley Duval. Hey, wasn't it around here that the Donner Party got snowbound? I think that was farther west in the Sierras. What was the Donner Party? They were a party of settlers in covered wagon times. They got snowbound one winter in the mountains. They had to resort to cannibalism in order to stay alive. That serves as a harbinger because what follows abandons the pioneering spirit of the Western myth and instead of cattle drives, churches and saloons, you get a father besieged by cabin fever. In other words, what ruptures the family in The Shining is patriarchy and it is literally in the head of the family. My girls, sir, they didn't care for the Overlook at first. One of them actually stole a pack of matches and tried to burn it down. But I corrected them, sir. And when my wife tried to prevent me from doing my duty, I corrected her. While in King's novel, it is clear that the ghosts in the hotel are coming to claim Jack's son because he has this gift called The Shining. In Kubrick's film, Jack is a source of evil who turns on his family. In other words, the patriarchal figure is the cause of all manner of societal discord. For obvious reasons, the shocking realities of cabin fever do not fit into the Western myth, which is why the phenomenon is very rarely, if ever, depicted on screen. However, in 1928, Victor Sustrom adapted Dorothy Scarborough's feminist novel, The Wind, to deliver in a very vivid way the plight of women in those frontier days. I don't know about the novel, but on screen, The Wind is a wild and progressive melodrama set in Texas's panhandle, where Letty, played by Lillian Gish, is a penniless woman who marries very badly, and for many, very bad reasons. The climax of the film has a cyclone raging about a remote cabin, inside of which Letty is further besieged by a dangerous man, Wirt Roddy, played by Montague Love. Substitute the snowstorm from the cyclone, and The Shining shares some of the wind's concerns. Boy, this storm is really something, isn't it? Over. Oh yes, it's one of the worst we've had for years. If you folks have any problems up there, just give us a call. And Mrs. Torrance? I think it might be a good idea if you leave your radio on all the time now. Perhaps not coincidentally, seven years earlier, Sustrom had directed The Phantom Carriage, another ghost story which contains a sequence that Kubrick copied almost shot for shot. Adapted from a novel by Swedish author Selma Lagerlof, The Phantom Carriage has a drunken husband beating his fists on a door behind which a terrified mother has locked herself and her child. Unable to get in, the husband retrieves an axe. <laughs> That is not the only instance of Kubrick finding inspiration in other films. For the iconic moment when the tsunami of blood bursts through the elevator, Kubrick appears to have been channeling the classic B-movie horror The Blob, directed by Irvin Yeaworth and Russell Doughton in 1958. 
You can see it in the frenzied moment where the alien jelly-like mass oozes out through the front doors of a small town cinema. Don't go in, Jim. This won't do any good. It's the most horrible thing I've ever seen in my life. Come on, we've got to clear this area. And finally, the very last shot in The Shining bears an uncanny resemblance to the final shot in Roman Polanski's 1965 horror, Repulsion. Set mostly in a cramped London flat, it depicts Carol, played by Catherine Deneuve, as a young woman succumbing to badness over the course of a week. After the horrific homicides are uncovered, the camera creeps around the flat, finishing on a close-up of a photo showing us the young Carol in her childhood. But enough with the cinematic citations. Despite referencing the wind and the phantom carriage, The Shining is not all that sympathetic to its female lead. On the contrary, it seems to delight in tormenting Wendy. Although convincingly portrayed by Shelley Duval, Kubrick's direction limits her to a shrill, simpering and weak-minded woman, who seems to invite, if not deserve, the abuse meted out to her. Here is Stephen King in 2009, being interviewed on the BBC News 24 show, Book Review. One of the things that people relate to in my books is there's a warmth, there's a reaching out and saying to the reader, uh, I want you to be a part of this. And with Kubrick's The Shining, I felt that it was very cold. Shelley Duvall as Wendy is really one of the most misogynistic characters ever put on film. She's basically just there to scream and be stupid. And that's not the woman that I wrote about. It is well known that Kubrick and Diane Johnson altered and deleted many elements from King's novel. But what is perhaps less well known is that once filming began, Kubrick made many changes to the script he and Johnson had finished. Here is Johnson once more, this time from 2008, being interviewed by Terence Gallanter. I wrote it in England, you know, sitting around his, his house, basically. Um, when it came to the shooting, he cut out a lot of, of Wendy's lines. Mm -hmm. In fact, so the, 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 the wife, who, Wendy, who really has very little to say. And in my version, she was more articulate. But apparently, <laughs> they didn't get along, he and Shelley Duvall. And, and he didn't like the way she would say the lines. And so he'd say, oh, then never mind, cut that. <laughs> and so, so finally, it came, came down to her just screaming a lot, basically. <laughs> you probably remember. Without doubt, The Shining is an unsettling horror film but only in places. In other places, it is deeply unpleasant, while elsewhere, it is just downright silly. Some decisions make sense, while others are simply bewildering. One of the biggest differences between King's novel and Kubrick's film is the finale. King has Jack killed in a fire that engulfs the hotel, while in the film, Jack gets lost and freezes to death in the snowbound maze. Kubrick made that change because King's novel has the hotel's grounds, populated by topiary animals that come to life. Lacking the special effects to realistically render such transformations, Kubrick opted instead for a maze, which became a new visual and thematic motif that informed his remaining films. In The Shining, we see it both inside and outside the hotel, representing the paranoid pathways of Jack's mind, leading him into cabin fever. Then there is Full Metal Jacket, where the platoon find themselves isolated in Way, and even though they have a map, they still get lost in the labyrinth of the bombed-out city. I think we made a mistake at the last checkpoint. Here, see what you think. 
I think we're here. And we should be here. We're here? Yeah. We should be here? Yeah, yeah, that's right. What do you think? Well, I think we should change direction. And finally, in Eyes Wide Shut, Dr. Bill Hartford, played by Tom Cruise, ventures into the labyrinth of New York's elite underworld and with his moral compass all askew, loses his bearing in the streets, orgies and lies. Good evening, sir. Good evening. Password, sir? Fidelia. Thank you, sir. 